Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm going to lead off uh, with a question. It's a question you've heard me ask before. You can probably anticipate it. Where in the word are you today? Let's spend a little time this morning in John chapter 17. Uh, Get ourselves focused in a right and righteous uh, direction before we turn our attention to the headline news of the day. So John chapter 17 is known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's important to remember the context here. Jesus is literally um, hours, steps away from the cross. He has not yet at this point been betrayed by Judas nor denied by Peter. Uh, The context here is Jesus praying not only for himself, and for those disciples who are right there around him, those we know as the apostles, but for his future disciples, you and me, that we might show forth the unity of the Spirit of Christ in such a way that the entire world would believe that he is the Son of God, that they would believe in him for salvation. So as I read, I want you to consider the power of the very fact that Jesus, very God of very God, prayed. And then ask yourself, hey, did I, uh, <clears throat> did I tend to first things this morning before I tended to secondary things? Did I tend to prayer? Did I tend to the Word of God? Did I focus my life, my heart, my attention in the right direction, in a righteous direction? Because without so doing, we're just not going to be able to engage in what's happening in the world today in a way that honors Jesus. So if Jesus needed to pray, how much more so do we? John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world right now, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I no longer, uh, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them 
and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That's the first 19 verses of the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. Jesus praying. Let us turn uh, to a few of the international headlines of the day with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Luke Moon. You can find him at philosproject.org. You can also find him at providencemag.com. Luke, welcome back. Good to see, hey. hear, hear you speak with you. Hopefully good morning. You yeah, good morning. good morning and Happy New Year. Likewise. Let's um let's start off. Um, we could you know we could spin the globe this morning and start just about anywhere. Um, let's start with China. Um, and there's several headlines related to China. Um, maybe the uh, maybe the EU deal is where we should start. Tell people what's going on there. Well, China and EU are you know trying to make a, a deal that has stalled for a long time. It stalled over issues related to you know what basically workers' rights. Also, uh, the EU is concerned about the Uyghur population. Uh, in northern China, the the population of of Muslim Chinese that uh, have been detained in the, in in basically you know concentration camp type settings, uh, that's a big issue for the EU. Uh, but they're also you know they're the EU and China are major economies, and they're trying to you know get a deal set, and it looks like it's it's going that direction. So. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those examples, Luke, where, uh, and I think we we see this fairly frequently, where our um, our consumerist desires uh, over overrun um, our moral objections, and so I just think that uh, we as Christians in the United States of America need to be uh, continually aware of this as well. We have talked about the plight of the Uyghurs, we have talked about the human rights violations of China. Um, and yet we like our iPhones. And so I um, I just think that uh, people need to be very aware of what's in the balance um, when uh, when deals are made by major market economies around the globe, including our own. And so um, thanks for highlighting this one this morning. Let's pivot to China and Hong Kong, because the uh, the storylines and the threads of the story related to Hong Kong, I think for people who um, are of a democratic mindset and imagine that China because it's now capitalist, behaves also as a democracy. That's just not true. Talk about what's going on in Hong Kong. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, last year there was there was major demonstrations against the Chinese uh, mainland, Beijing specifically, for uh, basically taking over Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been given for many years, actually, since the British pulled out. It was a semi-autonomous region that had a lot of, you know, was allowed to have democracy and it was allowed to have kind of freedom of press and freedoms that that most in, in mainline China did not enjoy. And uh, Beijing was like, all right, we've had enough and now we're going to we're going to, you know, pull Hong Kong in. And that riled a bunch of people who have experienced freedom and don't want to go under the you know, heavy thumb of uh, the communist dictators in China. And so what, what has happened is that basically the, the, the communist, uh, the Beijing uh, government has has taken control and continues to push out uh, and and kind of lock down a bunch of the major institutions where where freedom and democracy flourished. I mean, the press is is a big area. It had there was a lot within kind of in in the courts and law and 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 in particular, and the the real problem is that it's now coming in and impacting the church. Uh, and that that I think is is you know a real challenge for. Uh, the global church, but it's a real challenge for the church in China specifically. Yeah, when we think about um, the the freedoms that we enjoy guaranteed by uh, our constitution, and we we think about freedom of speech, we think about freedom of movement, even we think about uh, a freedom to you know go and, and and buy and sell and engage in uh, in commerce. When we think about the freedom of education here in the United States of America, we think about um, and certainly the freedom not only of worship, but the freedom um, to genuinely express our religious convictions uh, in the marketplace of ideas. Those are things that the people of Hong Kong have also experienced over the course of time. And all of that is being constricted um, and and including then also the freedom of the press. And, you know, I, I think that people, you know, people need to pay attention to what is happening. If you, if you imagine for a moment that just because you have grown accustomed to freedom, freedom is never going away. Um, you'd you'd be wrong, right? But the the other, I mean, the major factor here is that, and, and this is kind of meta and implies around the world is is that the church is really the biggest competition to the state for the mm. ideas of people, right? And so, like that's the the it's it really is the obstacle. That's why I think even in the United States, you see so much pressure being applied to churches in in ways that you know it doesn't apply to Home Depot right right because because the 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 institution of the church challenges the authority of the state by saying there's something higher than the highest official in the land and that's god and so in most most governments are having have generally an antagonistic relationship to the church because of that and you see that especially with the Chinese because it's it, it, it in in Chinese situation because uh, communism from its very beginning saw the church as an obstacle and you know the the church is the you know religion is the opiate of the masses that kind of thing uh, it, it it just presents itself uh, as a challenge to the communists a challenge to dictators around the world and a, and a challenge even to democracies that tend to be progressive. Uh, they just want it's it's the church gets in the way. Mm, excellent observation. Um, thank you so much for 
Um, I, I just that's a that's a really astute observation. Thank you, Luke. Hey, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, um, can you bring us up to speed, if possible, on the sunburst security breach uh, here in the United States? I thought it was the Solar Winds software, you know, hack or something, and so now it's known as sunburst. And so, I'd love to be brought up to speed on that. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. Luke, um, uh, Russia, I mean, I think we're blaming it on Russia, right? Um, I think I think we believe Russia is behind this massive hack. Um, but I think yes. that there's just a lot of people who were kind of busy over Christmas and completely missed this. So talk with us about uh, what's going on and make whatever observations you want to make uh, in terms of the impact of this uh, of this sunburst security breach. Right. So there was a major breach of Americans' national security apparatus, but not just Americans' national security, but also businesses' major corporations around the United States. Uh, Something like 18,000 companies were affected by this breach. And And it seems to be the work of, you know, not not criminal like, you know, corrupt organization, but but actually of the government itself. And that leads to questions of, you know, what's what's the implication here for for Russia? What are they after actually? Uh, but what it you know, it, it is a a major breach of a major uh, system. It's basically it's you know, almost the equivalent of like them hacking windows and getting in everybody's computer. Uh, and the real impact, I think, is going to be years uh, down the road uh, because the extent to which this uh, this malware got into people's system is is not yet known, but it's very significant. Um, so for those of you not familiar with this, um, malware, malicious uh, software got into basically the back door through um, a third party software. And that's that was what was exploited. And so. Thousands of companies and several agencies of the U.S. government were um, exposed. The extent of the damage, you know, continues to be unknown. Um, and I think it's fair to say, you know, uh, Luke, the the damage um, is going to be experienced in the real world. We just don't yet know what that's going to be. I liked the analogy um, uh, that they drew in, at the at the conversation. The analogy of cancer, like, right? You don't. You don't really know. Um, sometimes it hides and it goes on in, in an invisible level for a very long time, eating away um, at your good cells. And so um, I don't think we know what, what the ultimate. About, exactly. What's amazing about a hack like this is that, you know, there's there's, you know, several years ago, the United States, I think in the United States and Israel, even though we never admitted it, we got into the Iranian nuclear uh, computers and were able to you know, run centrifuges at faster rates than they were supposed to run and therefore burn them out faster, uh, you know, and, and even though the, you know, the computer would read it was running at oh, 10,000 RPMs, it was actually running at 20,000 RPMs in reality, and that was a computer hack that did that. Uh, and so it, we we actually were able to destroy much of the Iranian nuclear, you know, process in, in by, by such a, you know, a hack. And the concern is that, you know, basically there's something like that 
uh, within these uh, these hacks uh, that could could have damage in the future beyond just you know gathering intel and information on what you know what companies are doing, which is also you know very helpful if you're a nation. But you know there it's unclear really um, how deep this goes and and how long the, uh, the, the what what the long-term implications of this are other than we we got hacked and it's terrible yeah hey since you brought up iran um and specifically iran and nuclear um energy um i'm i'm aware that just in the last few days um uh, iran has admitted that it is now uh bumping up its uranium enrichment levels um at one particular facility in tehran um, uh, way above the uh, 2015 Iran nuclear deal cap, which was a 3.67 percent enrichment level, to 20 percent, the highest since, um, uh, well, I mean, I, the highest that I think that we know of. So um, what? just give us your, your over and under there. What's going on when Iran starts uh, creating weapons-grade uranium? Right. I mean, I think that, listen, Iran wants the bomb. Uh, they've, they've been working on it uh, with or without a deal. Uh, and I think they're they're trying to pivot themselves in a way that when the Biden administration, the Biden administration comes into power, that there's going to be some kind of negotiations between the Iranians and the United States. And and it's going to a lot of it's going to have to do with lifting of sanctions uh, and that kind of thing, which would be it, which would be Honestly, it would be terrible for the region. I mean, you know, the, the, you would have the restart of the Syrian war. You'd have the restart of Yemen. You'd have the restart of, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas having having lots more money to spend on on terrorist activities. Uh, so I think there is a real concern uh, coming in with with the Biden administration on what they're going to do re- in relation to Iran. But I think by kind of ramping this up, they're going to, uh, you know, Iran is basically positioning themselves in, into a very aggressive, um, you know, negotiating position and, you know, say, oh, you know, in, in the in the deal, OK, we'll 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 slow it down. We'll only enrich to, you know, 10 percent or 5 percent or whatever. Uh, but it gives them a, you know, if, they, if they're starting at 10 percent and going down to five, it's different than if they start at 20 and go down to five. So it's I think it's a negotiating position, but the real big picture here is that, you know, Iran gets money again, and they're going to start spending it in the region. And the reason why there was a civil war in Yemen and a civil war in Syria, it has a lot to do with the with the Iranians and the amount of money they had. And and it would be terrible if we gave them more money. Yeah, that's going to be a story that you and I uh, can can watch unfold um, over this year. What yes. um, just just let me know what else you're keeping an eye on or or because I know that you are um, in touch with what's happening um, in Lebanon, maybe give us an, an update on what you know is happening in Beirut uh, in terms of the recovery from the massive uh, explosion there last year. Yeah, I mean that was a, I mean it was the equivalent of a nuclear bomb going off in the in you know in in Beirut in the you know the the capital of Lebanon. I, it's going to take years for them to recover. Honestly, it's it damaged so many buildings. Uh, the the I mean the the wheat reserves for the nation were stored in giant silos at the port. 
all that's gone and it's going to take years to get that back up it's it's impacted i mean all this is happening in the midst of of covid which really is strangling the global economy uh and i it, it's it's a really uh, a tough uh, a tough go for for the lebanese people uh you know we we were involved with uh you know raising a small amount of money to help uh, you know with provide food for for christian families there in, in lebanon but it's a it's a real struggle daily for them yeah, so that's certainly on the forefront of um, of prayer concern as well. Luke, we look forward to uh, ongoing conversations with you over the course of this year. Thanks for keeping your uh, finger on the pulse of what's happening internationally and, and, and helping us uh, understand it from a Christian perspective. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Right. That's Luke Moon. You can find him at the Philos Project. You can also find him at Providence Magazine. We'll be right back. Hey, it's time to catch up again with George Barna. Um, we have been talking with him about the American Worldview Survey uh, today. He's going to talk with us about um, whether or not President Trump is, in all likelihood, the last conservative president. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Pain is predictable. You don't have to guess. Guaranteed, it's coming. Because anytime you confront foolish thinking or you have a contest of opinions and ideas, it's painful. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Moms and dads, if you have teens or preteens, you know what I'm talking about. Anytime your kid lashes out, pain is just around the corner. When wrong motives and desires are exposed, and when your teen is confronted, limited, or restricted, it's painful. Effective parenting doesn't mean you need to make everyone feel better. In fact, conflict may be the bold blinking neon sign that God's healing work has begun in your family. So when pain shows up in your home, don't run from it, use it. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining us again today, George Barna. We have been talking with him about the American Worldview Inventory. And today we're actually going to talk about a survey that they conducted the week after the election. George Barna, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, always good to be with you. So following the election in November, you guys did a post-election survey. You did this at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, um, same institution that uh, we've been talking with about the American Worldview um, survey as well. So uh, what did you discover in this post-election survey? Well, there are quite a few things that we looked at trying to understand what actually happened as opposed to what was reported as happening. And uh, one of the things that we looked at was this group that we always follow called SAGECONs, the Spiritually Active, Governance-Engaged, Conservative Christians. A really interesting group uh, back in 2016. You know, these are people who get engaged in politics, not because it's a passion of theirs, but because their faith compels them to try to have influence in every dimension of our culture. And so politics, government, 
public affairs, all of that would be one of those dimensions. And so back in 2016, they really didn't like Donald Trump. But when they looked at the alternative in Hillary Clinton, they said, OK, we have no choice but to vote for Trump. So they were reluctant Trump supporter, supporters back in 2016. Turned out in very large numbers, 91% turnout, 93% of them voted for Mr. Trump, even though they didn't know if they could trust him, didn't like his tweets, etc. Well, move forward four years, 2020 election, this same group of people, Sage Cons, again, at this point, they like President Trump. They're no longer reluctant supporters. And what we found was that 99% of them across the country turned out to vote. And of those 99%, 97% voted for Mr. Trump. And this time they were doing it not reluctantly because they didn't like Joe Biden either, but they were very enthusiastic, perhaps the most enthusiastic based on other measures we have, supporters of Mr. Trump because of what he'd done in office. he came come through with his promises he was backing the same kind of issues and positions that Sage Khans, the, the most devoted of Christians, were looking for. And so when you put this into context, when you get the big picture, understand that Sage Khans represent 9% of the adult population, but because their turnout numbers, they represented 14% of all the votes cast. And when you look at the votes that Mr. Trump received, they represented 30% of his support base. So it became an incredibly important group for him. In fact, of the 23 million votes that Sage Khans cast in November, uh, what we found is that after you take out those who voted for Mr. Biden, not very many, those who voted for other candidates or chose not to vote for a presidential candidate at all, they gave Mr. Trump a net of 21 million votes. So... This is a very significant group politically, and uh, it's shocking to me that nobody pays any attention to them. It's a huge, I mean, it's it tells us a lot about ourselves, particularly if we identify as a spiritually active, uh, governance-engaged conservative Christian. Like, I, you know, mm-hmm. I am one of those. Like, I recognize mm-hmm. myself in what you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And... I do feel sort of underrepresented and certainly underconsidered in terms of the concerns that national political campaigns in particular, you know, place in terms of identifying groups of people that that are worthy of of consideration and outreach. But tell me what for, for you, you know, you look at these things year in and year out. You've been looking at these things for a really long time. Anything that surprises you in this research that, that you didn't highlight in, in that opening commentary? Well, I mean, one thing that I, I alluded to but didn't really point it out is that 99% turnout for any segment is unprecedented. It's I mean, crazy, I right? Oh, I wrote I mean, down oh, turn, voter turnout, question mark, exclamation point. Like, that seems crazy to me, 99%. And I'll tell you, Carmen, I went back and reevaluated the research four or five separate times because I kept thinking, this has got to be wrong. There's no group where you're going to get 99% turnout. But here's the point. These are people who, by and large, are driven by a biblical worldview, And of course, that's the locus for all of our decision making. And so these are individuals who look at the lay of the land, look at their life, look at their relationship with God, and they know that someday 
God is going to call them to account for what they did with the 2020 election. And they did not want to have to say to him, you know, I had lunch scheduled that day, or, you know, I thought I'd sleep in, or I really didn't like either of the candidates. I mean, there's no excuse that you can come up with as a follower of Christ to say, this is not a significant cultural event where the voice of the body of Christ needs to be very strongly represented. And so they take that spiritual responsibility seriously. I mean, we found that they were among the best informed of all the 80 different segments of the population that we study in our research. They certainly had the highest turnout. They had the most united turnout of any group. How's that possible that any group would have 97% consensus in terms of who they were going to vote for in this day and age? I mean, everything mm-hmm. is splintered these days. But with this particular group, the reason they could do that is because they believe that the Bible is God's truth. They believe it represents absolute moral truth. And so as they looked at what's my responsibility in this election, they said, you know what, I've got to look at the issues. I've got to choose the individual who's going to represent God best, who's going to propel his agenda forward as as best possible. Obviously, he's not Jesus. You know, nobody would confuse Trump with Jesus. But the idea was we need to find a candidate who's going to do the best possible job at standing up for the kinds of values and views and principles that you find in the scriptures. Nobody's going to do it perfectly, but they really believe Mr. Trump was going to do a very good job at it based on his first four years in office. So, I mean, that was really interesting to me. The other thing that fascinated me was that when I looked at Sage Khan's and compared their reasons for voting with the reasons of all other Americans, the other 91% of those in the population, and why that other 91% voted. They were voting on the basis of hating Mr. Trump, uh, the the alleged charisma of uh, Mr. Biden or, or Ms. Harris, the, the you know other kinds of things, personality-driven types of things as opposed to sage cons who, I mean, the, the top things, I'll list them for you, track record of President Trump first four years in office, 30% said that drove their, their choice of candidate. His position on social issues listed by 28%, position on fiscal and economic issues, 27%, conservative and political ideology, 25%, his leadership abilities, 21%. Those were the things that caused them to vote for him not because they thought he was warm and fuzzy, not because they like a, a great street fighter. You know, They looked at what is this guy going to accomplish? How's it going to affect lives? Not how's it going to make me feel? So again, a very distinct perspective on the part of people who are trying to live their life biblically. And that to me was, was really pretty heartwarming. George Barna and I need to take a very brief break. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. All right, picking up where we left off, George Barna is back with us today. Uh, You can find him on Twitter at George underscore Barna. George, so one of the things that I did here in considering the year 2021 was I thought, I wonder what George Barner remembers about things that uh, research told us about ourselves 20 years ago. So I actually pulled up here 
the year's most intriguing findies, findings from Barna research studies uh, 20 years ago in, um, in 2001. And, and here's what I want to say. If we had been paying attention and if we had uh, learned our lessons well, the things that you're telling us today about ourselves would not be so surprising. So I guess I'm wondering, when you look at all of this and you say, I mean, you're actually able to say, you know, Donald Trump is likely to be the last conservative president for the foreseeable future. You're saying that based on not just statistical information from the right now, but where you have seen this heading heading over time. Talk about that. Well, yeah, Carmen, I mean, that's based on a combination of things. One of those is pure demographics. Mm -hmm. If you look at the emergence of the millennial generation, you look at their attitudes and values, you look at their political history, such as it is, I mean, it's still emerging, obviously, but there's a, a deep enough track record that we can kind of predict where they're going with all of this. And then we look at the next generation, whatever you want to call it, Gen Z or whatever. Again, looking at the core attitudes and values of that group, you put all of that together because they will, over the next several election cycles, constitute the largest block of potential voters in the country. Turnout is a different issue, but just looking at raw numbers and looking at what they stand for, what they believe, that tells us one thing. Then add to the demographic realities. Oh, and by the way, let me also add that the fastest growing ethnic and racial groups in America are not the white population. The white population is on the decline statistically. And so we also then have to look at the uh, black population, the Hispanic population, and the Asian population, put those together and recognize that they're going to continue to grow. And that's even apart from the fact of what Mr. Biden wants to do with open borders should he get the presidency for the next four years. Uh, you know, that, that's going to change things dramatically. So then add to that what I call theolographics which is the study of religious background, behavior, beliefs, all of that religious stuff mixed together. And when you look at the fact, for instance, that the evangelical churches of America no longer really believe in teaching that the Bible is God's truth, teaching that it's authoritative, that it's true, it can be trusted, it's relevant to our lives, it's reliable as a source of moral guidance— you know, our, our worldview research is showing that those churches no longer do that. So you add the fact in there that the last bastion of conservative theology is basically moving toward the left, theologically speaking. You look at the fact that we are coming out of this pandemic, and I'm estimating that somewhere between 30 to probably 40, 45 percent of people who previously attended church on a regular basis are no longer going to do so. So you've got a population that no longer has a church home, so to speak. Now, some of those will wind up in different kinds of, of spiritual communities, and that's a good thing. But a large share of them believe that they've learned they can live without God. And so you put these and a lot of other insights that we're gleaning from our worldview research together. And again, it says that, well, the mindset of the Christian body— is also going to be changing. And so when we look at the political landscape, it's very likely that 
ideologically speaking, Donald Trump is the last conservative president that we'll have for the next three, four, maybe five election cycles, maybe more than that, if the Christian body doesn't wake up and start making some serious changes to how people think and live. Uh, there may be more Republican presidents that get elected to office, but they won't be conservative. They'll be centrist, probably leaning left, because that's where the movement in our culture is going right now, largely driven by the media and the schools. Okay, you just freaked people out, but I think that that's uh, not a bad thing when we <laughs> when we consider right who this nation is likely to elect in the political cycles going forward. Uh, to the office of the presidency, we are looking at a number of cycles in which it would be very unlikely, based on the oligraphics, which is a word I love, this theology, socionomic, demographic reality that we're living in in the United States of America right now. It's very unlikely that for the next several cycles, the people of the United States of America are likely to elect a conservative president who values the same things that that Christians value. Uh, you know, these active, engaged, conservative Christians. So we have to learn to live um, as a minority, seeking to influence the culture of which we are a part in ways that are different than we have been able to influence the culture when we have been in the political majority. I think that's probably the takeaway lesson. Yeah. And again, you know, you mentioned I freak people out. I guess that's my job. But you know, when when I look at all these data, you got to remember that basically what they provide to us is relatively linear projections. So the assumption, in other words, is that people are going to behave consistent with the way that they've been thinking and behaving. It's possible that it could change. I mean, that's always the hope that we have. That's what Jesus does in our lives. He brings radical change, transformation. It's possible that that could happen in our culture. And so these patterns that I'm projecting to continue could be disrupted. What disrupts them? Pain or supernatural intrusion. And mm. so maybe there's going to be enough pain if Mr. Biden and his crew are put into office that Christians will say, oh, my gosh, this is awful. We better do something. Duh, you think? You know, I mean, we've been, we've been waiting for years and years and years for Christians to say that, and the, the 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 bulk of them haven't done much. Obviously, sage cons, yes, they've been very active. They've been trying to wake up the church, wake up the populace. Uh, you know, they're they're not getting through because of media schools, etc. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's possible things could change. There could be a great awakening. There, you know, a revival. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we pray that that happens. That would radically change what takes place in our country. So I'm not saying it's hopeless. It's never hopeless. The issue is, what is it that people want in their hearts? And, you know, when I looked at this election, on the one hand, you had people like Sage Khan saying there's absolute moral truth. You had the rest of the culture saying, nope, emotional sovereignty is where it's at. What I feel is what's real, and that's what I'm going to pursue. You had Sage Khan saying rule of law is really what we need to follow. You had the rest of the culture saying, nah, I'm going to kind of resist that because I'm a law unto myself. It's all about me, and I'm going to determine what's right or wrong for me. You know, you had Sage Khan saying rugged individualism is what made this country great. And as long as we include Jesus in trying to focus us on where we're going, we're going to be okay. The rest of the culture saying, nah, 
I'm entitled to a lot of great stuff and I expect the government to deliver it to me. You know, so I've got this whole chart of here are the two sides that are competing and it's their worldview that's driving these perspectives and that's going to reshape America one way or the other. All right. If you want to check out more of what George Barna is talking about day in and day out, uh, you could go to the Facebook page for the Cultural Research Center. You're going to find that at C-R-C-A-C-U. That A-C-U stands for Arizona Christian University, which is the website you can go visit, arizonachristian.edu backslash Cultural Research Center. Tons of information there about how you can understand what's going on and influence cultural transformation going forward. Great stuff. Uh, George, as always, thank you so much and Happy New Year. Well, thanks. Same to you, Carmen. Looking forward to it. We'll be right back. All right, we are uh, quickly approaching the end here um, of the show, of the show. Panic not. Uh, okay, one more headline here to cover before the end of the hour. Um, there was a census in 2020. Federal law actually mandates that the Census Bureau submit the data for the census by December the 31st. Well, the Census Bureau uh, didn't do that and actually said last week it would likely not only miss the year-end deadline, but has now said this week that um, it's going to be sometime in February before they get it together. Uh, The population data is used to allocate congressional seats. It's also used to allocate uh, the nearly $1.5 trillion federal budget uh, in terms of which states get how much of that pie. So I thought that I would um, remind us today that even if we're having a hard time counting ourselves and deciding who counts in America, everyone counts and is accounted for by God. And so if you want to pivot the conversation today, um, maybe, you know, maybe people are talking about the census where you live. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just talking about Georgia. Um, But I want you to be the person who says, hey, you know what? Everyone counts when it comes to God. Uh, Nobody is unaccounted for by God. God literally sees you right now, right where you are. God is omniscient, um, which is all-knowing. Yes, he's a know-it-all. God is all-seeing. He sees every single person in their circumstance right now, including you. Uh, Maybe we remind ourselves of the story of Hagar in Genesis 16. God sees you. He sees your situation. He knows your name. He knows your need. He sees exactly what you're going through. I want you to revel in the recognition of Hagar, who said, You are El Roy, the God who sees. Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. That's Genesis 16, 13. Knowing that God saw her and cares for her changed everything for Hagar. It also uh, changed how she saw herself as a person worthy of the attention uh, and provision of God. Um, That's you today, too. You count in the eyes of God, and you are accounted for. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.